What I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Alice Roberts is an academic, broadcaster and writer, medical doctor, university lecturer and now Professor of Public Engagement with Science at the University of Birmingham. She makes a lot of programmes and writes a lot of books about human anatomy, physiology, evolution, archaeology and history and she's featured, amongst many other programmes, on Channel 4's Time Team, BBC 2's Coast as well as several episodes of Horizon. She's written a huge number of popular books including The Incredible Unlikeliness of Being, shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize in 2015 and last but very much not least of course she's the current president of Humanists UK. Alice, you're an anthropologist, so I thought we might start there because I think that a lot of your beliefs, therefore, might be quite interesting ones about humans. Yeah, I'm a I'm a biological anthropologist, so I that, you know that's my area of study, my area of research, and I look at humans from that kind of biological perspective. What's interesting about that is that there's not a hard, fast line between biology and culture you know culture is just what we do as biological organisms Um, and I I think over time I found myself becoming more and more interested in that cultural end of anthropology as well as the the, I suppose the more biological end most people that are biological anthropologists if you boil down what we do we look at old bones (laughs) and uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of the uh, at the center of it so a lot of us are involved with either studying fossils or studying archaeological human remains or a bit of both. Uh, but you can't really just look at the, the structure of people in the past, the structure of societies in the past, uh, without being interested in the cultural side as well. And how has that shaped that work? How has that shaped what you think about human beings? I think it has shaped uh, a lot of what I think about life and death, but I think actually that probably goes back a lot earlier before I was studying biological anthropology specifically as a discipline and probably goes back to I don't know early thoughts about um, the meaning of life uh, life and death and then particularly I I originally trained as a medic as well and I think you know those you you have to confront mortality in a very real way uh, every day when you're when you're a medic and and I think that that, again, has, uh, has framed my beliefs and, and changed my beliefs. Because you're working at the moment, aren't you, on um, uh, a new book, I don't know when it's coming out, but sometime in the future, um, about death and, and death rituals. I suppose, actually, that's what most, if, the, if there is a, um, a common view of what anthropologists get up to, I think anth- most people think that they do get up to studying death, death rituals, or what they, they normally uh, do study. Um, this is obviously an area of interest for you. Yeah, um, it's something I've been mildly obsessed with uh, for uh, at least a couple of decades. I, I've been looking at archaeological human remains uh, for uh, you know 20, at least 20 years. 
and there's a there's a there's a really interesting uh, connection there between the the two different sides of my academic work so on the one hand I look at old bones uh, ancient human remains and you know I'm looking at skeletons and trying to work out how old people were when they died what sex they were all of that sort of thing with the pathology I'm particularly interested in the pathology probably because of my background as a medic but the other side of my work um, and what I focus on in my teaching at university is uh, is anatomy is human anatomy and again that 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 ends up being quite a lot about death because we use cadaveric uh, anatomy so we we teach medical students using human cadavers which I still think is you know the best way of learning learning about the body and I think as a medical student as well that's when I really started to think about mortality and um, come to terms with you know what life meant what death meant what the body means you know the, the meaning of the, the human body it was quite a strange experience I think to go through as an 18 year old mm. Mm. going to medical school I went to medical school in Cardiff and um, you know in the first week we were there we were in the dissection room and holding a knife and having to cut into a dead body and it, there are so many emotions and there are so many thoughts at that point uh, there's a there's a massive taboo um, which feels very very deep-seated deep-rooted about cutting into a body uh so there's that and i think that it's very useful for medical students to go through all that all, all those processes and those thoughts so that anatomy is more than just learning about the human body and yeah. the structure of it it's actually about um how you interact with other bodies living and dead it's about how you approach your own mortality how you approach the mortality that you're going to experience in your in your working life as well and so, I mean, focusing on um, burials and, and I suppose death in the archaeological record, what that does is open up a window for us on people's thoughts about, about death and about the meaning of life and death way back into the past, you know, way before we have any history, way before anybody's writing anything down. So it's the kind of deep history of, I suppose, making sense of what it means to be alive what it means uh, to a community when a member of that community dies and you're able to access that through the archaeology. What's an example of that? Can you give us an example? What, what was the first or most interesting example of that that you encountered? Well, I think one of the really interesting questions is, uh, is when people start to uh, have any kind of funerary rituals. Mm. And when we look around the, the rest of the animal kingdom, we, we certainly see that other animals mourn. So we see evidence that, um, for instance, quite well-known examples like elephants and, and chimpanzees uh, mourning the death of a, of a companion. And it, it's, uh, that becomes very tricky because you're, you're anthropomorphizing, you're using kind of human terms to describe what an animal is doing. But on the other hand, it seems a bit obtuse not to refer to it as mourning when you can kind of see behaviour that if you were to see that in a human, if you were to see a human revisiting a corpse and, and, and looking at it and, and touching it and you know, coming back to it again and again, then you would consider that to be a form of mourning. Uh, so I, I think we have behavioural evidence in those, in those other animals that there is some kind of concept of loss, I suppose, that an individual is no longer there. And what we don't have is, is anything more than that. So we don't have um, any kind of 
ritualized behavior uh, which goes beyond that and what we look for in archaeology i suppose the, f- the first thing we're looking for is burial mm. now burial is interesting because it doesn't necessarily mean that there's some there's a ritual going on uh which is about people's feelings or thoughts or any kind of beliefs about what's happened to that person once they've died uh, it may be that they're just trying to dispose of a body so we have to separate uh, funeral ritual from mortuary rites so mortuary rites we might think of as being purely about getting rid of bodies um, whereas a funeral ritual uh, involves other concepts as well which might be uh, concepts about the meaning of life the meaning of death or they might be concepts which um, become religious as well so thinking about um, life after death once you get to the iron age and you've got people being buried with um you know, elite people being buried with big collections of, uh, which are obviously representing their material wealth, but also kind of food offerings. You kind of think there must be something there. About, it must be for something. <laughs> it must be for something. You've, you know, you've buried, there was this amazing uh, burial in Germany, Iron Age burial in Germany, in the middle of the first millennium BCE, which is the Hochdorf Prince. I mean, he was buried in absolute splendor. He had gold shoes. He had a gold. Um, he had a gold belt. Uh, he had a wagon piled up with plates and bowls and drinking horns all around, all around the edges of his his grave, which was a timber chamber underneath a mound. But he also had a massive cauldron with, I think it was five hundred liters of mead. Uh, so that's he, enough for, for for any afterlife. Yeah, I think he was expecting a party. <laughs> I think he was somebody that didn't get had, one, did he? <laughs> no. <laughs> So he'd, he'd partied a lot during his life and he just expected to carry on doing that, I think. Uh, and again, I think it would be obtuse to look at that burial and think that there's anything, you know, that, that, that it's not about an afterlife at that point. You know, why you on think, earth would you bury somebody with that much mead? Yes, exactly. Yeah. You think, from what you said earlier, that the, the feeling of loss is the beginning of rituals about death. It's that thing that we share with some animals that, that what kickstarts human rituals around death initially was that what you were saying I think it might be it has to it has to make sense of that loss and it is obviously about the people that are living it's it's that's the interesting thing is it's not really about the dead person Mm. the dead person has gone so it's about making sense of that gap in your community and some of that might be about expressing grief and being allowed to express grief in a in a certain way and some of it might be about starting to re- renegotiate positions in society. You know, somebody's gone, that, that's, a, that's a point in a network, in a social network. How do you start to mend that hole and, and move the community on? So I think there's lots of different things that funerals are doing. What I find really interesting is, is you know, thinking about what's going on with those very ancient burials and those ancient funerals for which you have the archaeological evidence, and then looking at the present day and, and what we do with funerals today, it does make you look at things in a different way. That's what, I, that's what I love, actually, about anthropology generally, is that by studying other cultures, whether you're, you know, whether, if you're a social or cultural anthropologist and you're looking at other cultures, other contemporary cultures, that gives you a different perspective on your own culture. Why are we doing what we do around, around death and burial and funerals at the moment? It sounds like you think that's a good thing. Are you, you know, that, that that's necessary for your 
profession as it were in your uh, academic life but it also sounds like you think that might be actually a good value as well that external perspective I think it's great I mean I think it does it does a lot of things it breaks you out of um, a very kind of closeted view of your own beliefs your own perspectives the way that your society works the way that your society uh, is constructed the inequalities in your society uh, the way that you you deal with life and death it, it means that you you shake out any idea that what you're doing is natural and it's the only way of doing it and actually that um, there is a choice there and you're, you know, you might be making, you might be making a choice just to go along with what everybody has always done as far as you're concerned, but that is a choice. You don't have to go along with it. And, and I think for me as a humanist, actually, that's quite important because what we're seeing, I think, as a society becomes more secular is people reimagining uh, particularly rituals which are yes. needed to mark life events. And um, I think there's been quite a lot of tension around um, just, you know, just, well, you, we just do this. This is what we do in our society. You just carry on doing the same thing. Whereas asking, you know, why are we doing it? Who, is, who are we doing it for? And actually, can we construct something which is more meaningful and more fitting to the society that we're in now, rather than continuing to do something which was probably apt 100 years ago, but has less meaning now? I suppose that's something that you must come up into contact with a lot when you're looking at past societies is that question of change and innovation do you think this is a time of speedier innovation than other times in our species history i think in terms of um the rate of uh, scientific advance mm. and innovation i mean the 20th century has been utterly extraordinary but the other thing I suppose that the archaeological perspective gives you is, is that, you know, very clear view that there have been big changes in the past and that there have been, you know, changes which have had massive societal impacts. I mean, really huge societal impacts. And, and you, you, you see those changes happening. It's, it's difficult to know how quickly they happen sometimes, but you see those changes happening and you see that societies must have been very different before and after a certain innovation. And the big ones are things like farming. I mean, I, th I think that changes society quite, quite massively. And then also things like the introduction of um, metalworking and, and not only metalworking, but the changes in metalworking over time. So bronze is, is quite a, it's quite a rare sort of metal and a difficult metal to work with and a, you know, a metal where you have to combine two um, original metals together to create an alloy. And the difference when people start to be able to use iron, I think would have been quite extraordinary because iron ore is much more widespread than, than tin and copper. Right. And, um, a, a, and suddenly kind of democratizes that access to, this particular resource. So uh, yeah, I suppose a lot of it is about resources and how society deals with those resources. Um, and that's and such then, an interesting perspective because you know, a lot of people today, when they think about change, social change in the past, um, when they're trying to analyze history or think about today, they think of things as being led by ideas. You know, um, though this idea came about at this time, or this idea came about that at that time. But what you're saying partly is that you, huge changes in our our, our history and our nature have been led by 
material conditions as much as anything else. Yeah, I, I don't mean, think everyone can... appreciates that. I mean, if that's something that you believe, which sounds yeah. like it is, I don't think that's a, that widespread a belief or an understanding. Well, certainly what you see is, I suppose, the destabilizing influence of new materials. So the potential of a new material emerging into society for it to change the way that, that society works and to, and to really kind of change the, the way that power is distributed in society as well. And, you know, that is, that's interesting. I mean, you can go further with it. That's, that's the sort of adoption of new technologies of new materials through time. There's been a, there's been a tendency in archeology span over the last few decades to try to get away from environmental determinism but I think in some ways we're seeing a bit of a return to that. Uh, I think it needs to be more nuanced. I don't, I, you know, it, it's one of those debates where I think you can go too far in one direction or the other. You might so have you to explain can... environmental determinism. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so if you look at the history of humanity and, you know, go right back into time, right back into deep time, and we see that there are changes happening and we see that um, there are innovations. I mean, let's take farming as a, a, as a good example of that. The, the origin of the Neolithic, which is when we get the beginnings of agriculture. And, you know, do you view that as a, a group of people coming up with a bright idea and saying, we're going to take charge of our, of our resources. We're going to uh, control where our food comes from and this is how we're going to do it rather than gathering wild plants and hunting wild animals we are going to plant fields of of wheat and rye and barley and oats and we are going to go out there and catch wild cattle or oxen and domesticate them and wild goats and wild sheep and we're going to start farming and then we can take some of the risk out because uh, you know we've been in a position where as hunter-gatherers if the if the herds don't come through that year or there's right. a massive drought we cannot protect ourselves against that risk i don't think that's what happened at all i don't think i don't think there's that degree of foresight uh the the other end of that so that's a, that's that's kind of at one end of the spectrum where you say it's all down to human ingenuity people coming up with bright ideas those bright ideas catching on and then at the other end of the spectrum is it's all about environment it's all about people responding to environmental change so the, the stimulus for the change doesn't come from inside of people and from the bright ideas inside their heads. The stimulus for the change comes from existing in an environment. And we see that farming comes in after some pretty extreme environmental disruption, some climate disruption. So it comes in after the last ice age when the world is warming up and we have a period of a few thousand years where the world is warming up. We have more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and, and various plants are doing very well. And we do see hunter-gatherers starting to depend more on, uh, on cereals. So way before they become farmers, we see an increase, um, particularly in the Middle East, of uh, use of wild cereals and even the development of things like um, grinding stones for uh, grinding grains down into flour, which we can only presume was used to make bread. So we've got bread making before farming. Um, and we've also got some very early evidence of beer before farming as well. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the wrong way around. It's what people have always thought that, you know, the bright idea of farming came first, then you have right. the bright idea of bread, then you have the bright idea of beer. And it seems to be the other way around. But it also it is very much people responding to a change in their environments. 
following on from that period where you've got a few thousand years of um, quite nice weather and lots of lots of nice resources and, and and amongst those resources these cereals which are suddenly easy to gather and there's big stands of wild cereal uh, we then have a downturn in the climate it's horrendous about a, about a thousand years of winter returns a mini ice age and at that point people must have been under massive pressure I mean this is you know we're looking at the kind of conditions that would have caused widespread droughts that would have caused a population collapse and so people are forced to depend on what previously were probably a little bit of the you know a, a minor part of their diets and maybe fallback foods i mean cereals are great fallback foods you know when other things aren't around these grasses that's what they are will still be there they're not you know they're difficult to eat but they but they're still there and so i think you know there's a there's quite a good argument for the origins of farming happening against that background of um, a deterioration in climate where basically you become completely dependent on those fallback foods and you start to bring home more of these cereals. And, and again, I don't think, uh, you know, we'll never know because we can't time travel back. But sure. if, we, if we think about what's reasonable in terms of the, the innovation and how people came up with those ideas, it could have been some bright spark saying, well, actually, I could plant some of these seeds and I think they might grow. But I think that what's much more likely is that people were bringing wild cereals home, threshing them to get the, that get, to get the grains, to do whatever they were going to do, make them into flour or whatever. Um, and some of those grains would have, would have gone to the edges of the threshing floor. And then what, the genius is not coming up with the idea, but noticing that something right. has happened. What you notice is that around the edge of your threshing floor over, over um, a few weeks and months, you've got little plants growing up and you think, Oh, hang on a minute. I don't have to walk all those miles to go and gather these wild cereals. I could just do it here. Um, and so it, and, and you I, prefer, and I, you prefer this explanation, but not, not, I, it's not just a matter of personal preference. Obviously you think it's got some weight to it, but it sounds like you also, that's what you prefer as the, as the explanation to. I think, I Why think it's, I, <laughs> <laughs> it, it stands, it stands against that, uh, that, um, the kind of lazy narrative, I think it is a lazy narrative uh, that has become quite embedded in the stories we tell about our ancestors. We love a heroic story. Right. And let's face it, they're our ancestors, so we want them to be heroes. And they were quite heroic in lots of ways. You know. Some of them might have been, some of them <laughs> not so. You know, they're people, they're people. Um, you know, coming, you know, going, yes, and then they came up with the idea of farming and it, it's triumphant and it's, uh, I, I'd rather I like this idea that it's, you know, things happen by mistake and you go, oh. I think it's like cooking, you know, uh, and I'm sure that, I'm sure lots of people, you know, if people, if people enjoy cooking, they do a bit of cooking. I don't do much cooking. I'm not a very good cook, but, you know, I, I will occasionally follow recipes or I'll go a bit, I'll go a bit off-piste and, you know, sometimes the off-piste things turn out horrendously. Every now and then, they turn out really well and you go, oh, that worked well. And he didn't really plan it. But, no. you know, if somebody comes around, comes around for dinner, I, I, don't, I don't know if I would be that dissembling. I think I might be. I might go, oh, well, yes, I decided to do that. You know, I, I knew this would work and I, I knew it would turn out that way. Um, whereas actually it was a lot of chance and serendipity. So I think we underplay the role of chance and serendipity right. in human history. We also do it in evolution as well, of course. So we can, you know, we can go back further in time and we can look at evolutionary processes and we massively, massively underplay the role of chance. Again, we rather like the idea of you know, uh, species struggling against the odds. So what's wrong with this? What's the, what's the harm that you've identified that comes out of this heroic pioneer ancestor narrative that, you, that you're rejecting? 
I think clearly don't think it's very healthy. In, in I don't some think respects. it's healthy at all. <laughs> um, I think um, I think it instills a kind of arrogance. Right. I think it's I think it stands against um, a position of healthy humility. Okay. And, and I think that um, I suppose I suppose as far as my own broader political beliefs are concerned, mm. um, it does feed into those as well because I think that an awful lot of if we if we look at the species that are here today and we call them successful species because they're here you know that's the that's the measure of of success as far as evolution is concerned you're alive um and we kind of you know people say oh you know why did the dinosaurs die out the dinosaurs were rubbish they you know they they they, they weren't able to weaklings evolve. absolutely no <laughs> and then you go no 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 the dinosaurs were an incredibly uh, successful diverse bunch of animals that had expanded into pretty much every ecological niche you can imagine. And then a huge rock falls out of the sky. <laughs> and you can't really mitigate against that kind of thing. So, you know, it doesn't matter how successful they were on a day-to-day basis, on a year-to-year basis, a rock falls out of the sky, that's it. Should uh, try harder. Just, Should have tried harder. Try, <laughs> exactly. must, must try harder. <laughs> <laughs> so the mammals kind of get their chance at that point. So, right. you know, the, the idea that you could say that the, the dinosaurs were somehow ineffectual and the mammals, um, <laughs> you know, were just much better. They had, you know, they had some kind of, um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that the mammals were somehow superior Superior, I think, is the word you're looking for, yeah. It is, yeah. So, uh, and then that goes all the way through, I think. Uh, So, the. And you reject that belief. You're rejecting that belief. You're saying, no, it's that there's far more chance and contingency and circumstance involved. Yes. Than that. Yes. There is in the, in which species managed to, uh, to kind of squeak through uh, and become successful in terms of being around today. And, you know, we are a very successful species today. We're, we're extremely numerous and, and we've, mm. we've colonised the entire globe and now we're sort of slightly worried about the fact we've, we're perhaps Got too, too far. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of becoming victims of our own success. But I think that um, a really important point for me is that all of, uh, all of that, um, I think it seems quite abstract, those ideas about chance and, and serendipity playing a massive role and that we underplay that role both looking at human history and prehistory and, and looking at evolutionary history as well. But the same principle applies, I think, in, um, in society today, in that we, we tend to tell these stories of people who have succeeded. And you see this over and over again. So you see people who have um, become very successful business people, for instance, or very successful sports people, or you know, in, in, any kind of, in any kind of area or any discipline. And you look for the reasons for their success. And you go, right, what is it? They had something, there was something innate in them that means that they succeeded where others failed. And if we can grab onto that, then each of us can be that success. And the flaws in that are, of course, that um, not everybody can be exceptional. And whatever you do, um, you're not necessarily going to be that exceptional person. And the other flaws in it are you've completely disregarded the role of chance and serendipity and the, you know a lot of that is is the is where you're born and the family you're born into and your life chances yeah and uh, you know there's a there's a huge amount of um chance which underpins uh 
I, I suppose, how successful you are as an individual um, in modern societies. I suppose this is an idea that's shared by a lot of humanists. If you think about an archetypal person who, an archetypal humanist in recent history who showed this, Bevan, right, invents the NHS. And the reasoning, you know, he's a humanist, invents the NHS. um, And one of the reasons that he gives for doing it um, is that it's it's not as if people have chosen to be sick. You know, it's a misfortune. Um, And that's sort of what you're saying, isn't it? You know, the, the negative consequences of thinking that if you were just heroic and could struggle like our heroic ancestors, you would like, it's like winning a battle against cancer, isn't it? That's a terrible phrase that sort of is, is like the reverse of what you're saying. When people say, oh, he's fighting a battle with cancer and he lost a battle with cancer, or he won a battle with cancer, as if somehow um, could have tried harder, should have tried harder, could have won. Yeah. What you're yeah. saying is that that's not, because you, you're not, you're not trying to, wash paint away I don't think um the idea that people who work hard and do good things um are in some measure responsible for their success it sounds like you're more making the point about misfortune I suppose so it's I mean for me it's quite a fundamental point about equality really I see Uh, and it's about saying that if you if you look at certain people and say um that they have done well that they deserve more and they deserve more because they have worked hard for it. It's just not true that, right. uh, you know, they, they have more, but there's so much chance involved in that, that actually those opportunities should be spread much more evenly through society. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think politically for me, if it, they, those arguments that are, oh, well, you know, they've worked terribly hard, mm. um, they should have, a lot of it comes down to land, actually, in the UK. I mean, I just think it's, it's, just very, it's just very bizarre. If you strip it all away, if you strip everything away, and you say, um, you know, who, who should own the land? Uh, then I think, I think probably fundamentally nobody owns the land. And um, again, looking historically, obviously you have these constant clashes between um, groups of people who have used land um because it's there and because it's available and then other groups of people who have tried to enclose it and create territory uh because it's their source of income and their source of wealth and that sort of starts i think in the it probably does start in the neolithic Mm. and you you have that kind of clash and uh, and difference of perspectives about land use between farmers and and hunter-gatherers you said something at the beginning about um, culture and nature and, and, and the idea that culture is what we do as uh, organisms. We've talked a lot about um, cultural differences and, and, and stepping outside and seeing different cultural perspectives. I just wondered at the end whether there was anything you wanted to say about how much is culture and how much is nature of what we think of as making us human. You know, the sort of things that we've talked about, our approach to death or morality or the way we organise our societies. What do you where do you see as the um, dividing line is probably, if I say dividing line between culture and nature, you'll probably say there is no dividing line, but there is no um, dividing line. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, but, but, um, but you know what I'm getting at. I mean, you've said we're connected with other animals. For example, we've got that connection with other animals. We know that they um, feel a loss of another person. And in us, that's mourning and grieving. And we elaborate, you know, death rituals over it. Um, and I know in your other work, you've given other examples of, you know, animal sharing, 
and you know we are we have the same sort of behaviors and in us that's cooperation and and the division of you know things and so on um and obviously we have lots of different cultures in this world and you've described some of them um what is there if anything then um at the root of it all which is human nature beyond all that beyond all that culture or is that the wrong question they are uh, it is the wrong question because they're they're completely um inseparable they're completely inseparable in the same way um so i i think we've still i don't know whether it's something about western thought and western philosophy that we're so weighed down by dualism and we're weighed we weighed down by mind body dualism you know the the mind is just what the brain does it's that's it um and i and i think that you know it's interesting as a humanist having conversations about that with um people who are religious or actually some people who are not religious who still feel very strongly that the mind somehow exists mm. outside of or beyond the, the physical brain which which for me is a, is a is a completely supernatural belief uh with you know no ba- no basis in in scientific understanding at all to it sure so there's that dualism on the one hand and then there's this dualism about um biology and culture um that's probably more understandable to me in that um our, uh, human culture is so extreme that it appears to be something quite different it appears to be something quite different from any other animal cultures and and i would say you know as an anthropologist and as a biologist other animals do have cultures uh and if we if we define culture as a, a sort of behavior which um can be you know shared within a group uh which sometimes might be about uh, survival finding food that kind of thing um but there may be there may be other aspects of culture which um which don't actually appear to be anything about survival and they might just be about group identity there's a fascinating example amongst a group of chimpanzees where one of the female chimpanzees stuck a piece of grass in her ear for a while and she'd go around with this piece of grass stuck in her ear and the people observing her were thinking what on earth is going on here and it didn't stop there because after a while the other chimpanzees in her group all started to stick bits of grass in their ears and you go what is that yeah. that is chimpanzee fashion you know it's <laughs> it's it's not for anything other than they're just going oh she's got a piece of grass in her hair that looks, looks like, good in her ear. that looks good i might yeah. do that uh, and and so it makes you see human culture in a different way when you see things like that in other animals um and then of course in terms of culture i mean i uh, as a as a as an anthropologist and it's very difficult because the lay language is different from the the technical language i would say technology is part of culture as well and then you say okay so well maybe humans make make tools and you use tools and other animals don't and then of course that starts to fall down immediately when you you know you look at chimpanzees using hammer stones and uh, and anvils to crack nuts um as far as we know no chimpanzee has ever made a stone tool as in flaked a stone tool but that's the difference not the use of tools and all sorts of animals, all sorts of birds use tools, you know, lots of, well, the, the very clever corvids, all the crazy. Oh, yes, the famous crows. And oh, their li- yeah, mm. incredibly clever. Um, and so some of it, I think, is probably some of, some of that um, modification of your environment. It's all about modifying your environment, sometimes to, you know, help you survive. You know, medicine is part of it. Um, all of our agricultural technology is part of it. 
but then also there are things like art and music which are which are more difficult to kind of classify in immediate survival terms although i think they help us as a group um, and they help us express ourselves in ways which transcend the verbal um, you you start to see human culture as being um, something which is not an absolute difference between us and other animals but it's um, a difference of degree we've taken we, you know and it is a huge and, and, and because because there is then such a gulf between us and chimpanzees, our closest living relatives, it looks like something completely different, but I don't think it is. And what um, about our morality, our values? Well, I think that's a fascinating question because, uh, again, I think we can see the, the, the origin of, uh, of human morality, human values, uh, back in the past, but also by looking at our closest living relatives in the animal kingdom. And Michael Tomasello, who is an evolutionary psychologist and developmental psychologist, has done a lot of work looking at the development of, uh, of morality and values in children and comparing that with, with values and morality in chimpanzees. <laughs> so, you know, do very similar, very yeah. similar creatures. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, do chimpanzees have ideas of fairness, for instance? And he's he's looked at that with some really ingenious uh, experiments, and you know, and found that that you know, there's a point at which children overtake chimpanzees, and uh, <laughs> and they have um, more sophisticated concepts of fairness. But absolutely, chimps do have concepts of fairness, um, and we even see that with some monkeys as well. So, we're, you know, a little bit further away from us on the on the primate tree of life, and there's a um, a famous experiment where um, monkeys are given different foods as a reward. And I think one of them gets some grapes and the other one gets cucumber. And the one that gets the cucumber is utterly outraged and throws the cucumber across it. <laughs> and they've gone, this is not fair. This is not fair. So they have this concept of, uh, of, uh, of fairness, of equality, you could say. Mm-hmm. So I think our, you know, you can see how our morality has evolved from that. And I think that um, fundamentally what it comes down to is uh, having evolved as a species, which is incredibly sociable. We've evolved as a species where we have to work together in groups. We have to be able to cooperate. That's how we've been able to be so successful. And um, in order to achieve that cooperation, you first of all have to be able to think about what other people are thinking. So you have to have some theory of mind, you have to have empathy. Um, and then you have to have um, an appreciation of fairness and equality. I think some of the, you know, some of the moral values that humans have got are less worthy and things that we, you know, we try to reduce. And Stephen Pinker obviously wrote eloquently about that in Better Angels of Our Nature, where, mm. you know, he, he, if you identify different kind of moral values, they include things like um, in-group loyalty, Right. And I think, you know, that that for me is something that I would try to get away from. Um, and I would try to promote things like um, fairness and equality over in-group loyalty. Uh, but you can, yeah, you can certainly see the roots of all those values um, looking back into our evolutionary past. Michael Tomaselli came up with this amazing quote. I absolutely love it. And it's, it's about the way that you can't really separate human nature and human culture Yes, we are biological organisms, uh, but culture is just part of our, is part of our behaviour, and our behaviour comes from our biology too. So he said, and this is absolutely brilliant: a baby is born expecting culture, just as a fish is born expecting water. You can't separate the two. 
you can't say right how much of this comes from 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 culture and uh, how, how much of it comes from something that's that's biological and innate so that whole kind of nature nurture argument i think breaks down as well Alice Roberts, stepping outside your culture, stepping outside your species, uh, nature, contingency, serendipity, equality. Thank you for telling us what you believe. That was Alice Roberts telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a new weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the sixth episode of our first season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. And if you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about the humanist approach to life, about Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find it out at the Humanist UK website, humanist.uk, where you can also sign up as a supporter or a member. Next week, I'll be talking to comedian, broadcaster and quizzer Paul Sinha about what he believes. (laughs) 